This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee. Thanks for joining us today. We're really excited because today we're going to be interviewing Dr. K, who has a TV show on Nat Geo Wild called Exotic Animal ER. We'll be right back after these messages. Listeners, I'd love to introduce you to PetPlate.com. They deliver freshly cooked human-grade dog food right to your door. I'm talking about dog food that is so high quality that even us humans could technically eat it. I've been feeding Pet Plate to my pup for the last two weeks, and it's perfect for my picky pup and perfect for me since I'm so busy. So if you want something super healthy, really tasty, and ready to serve, go to PetPlate.com forward slash spot to get 30% off your first box. Once again, that's PetPlate.com forward slash spot to get 30% off your first box. P-E-T-P-L-A-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, really excited to have Dr. Kayon, who has her own show called Exotic Animal ER on Nat Geo Wild. Dr. K, welcome to today's show. Hey, thanks for having me on. How's everybody doing today? Fantastic. Thank you so much. So before we begin, I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of background about who you are, where you trained, and what your story is. Uh, Well, I'm originally from Buffalo. I was one of those kids that always grew up wanting to be a veterinarian. I know that sounds really cliche, but it's true. I didn't never wanted to be anything else. And from a very young age, I had an interest in non-traditional pets. I I grew up having a pet chicken, a pet duck, pet rabbits, um, even had a snake at one point in time. And I was always that odd kid on the corner house in the suburbs of Buffalo. And then as time went on, my interest grew even stronger. I've always been an avid bird watcher. I actually volunteered with the Buffalo Zoo for uh, quite a bit of time the summer between my senior year of high school and when I went off to college. And I got to work side by side with the bird keepers there. And that was a very enriching experience for me and really solidified that I definitely wanted to do avian and exotic animals when I got into practice. I went to college at Alfred University in the southern tier New York State, and I studied chemistry there. And I always knew that I eventually wanted to live in Florida. I grew up in Buffalo, like I said, and everybody knows it's cold there, and it is exactly like they describe it. I wound up at one point in my college career doing a co-op down at Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee in the chemistry division. And it was at that point in time that I visited the University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine. And I really liked the school. They had a strong exotics program, which not many vet schools do. I applied and fortunately I was accepted. So I spent the next four years there. And even though they are one of the vet schools that has a lot of, lot more exotics than other vet schools, that's still not a lot. We really only had one four-credit-hour class 
in third year, and then you only had one two-week rotation for avian and exotic animals. So it was really up to you to get experience wherever you could. So I went on um, what we call externships, which is what you do when you are still a veterinary student, and you go to a facility to train. So I spent one month at Aviculture Breeding and Research Center in Loxahatchee, Florida, and that was, you know, exclusively a bird facility. Thousands of birds there, many, many, many different species that you don't see just anywhere. So that was a terrific experience. And um, my goal ultimately was to move to Florida and become a vet down here. And while I was down at, on that externship, I interviewed at a veterinary hospital and got hired. And so after graduation, I moved to Florida. Before I started working, I did spend two months in San Diego working with Dr. Jeff Jenkins at the Avon and Exotic Animal Hospital of San Diego. And that was a huge benefit to me because I got to see avian and exotics in a private practice setting. So got a lot of experience, so a lot of, you know, good techniques, client communication, how to do things properly. And then when I finished there and started my job in Florida, I was in a small animal practice in Miami. I was doing mostly evening and emergency work, but it was a clinic that had five locations throughout the Miami area. And they would send any of the avian and exotic patients to me. So slowly I started to see more and more exotics. And after the first year, I moved up to Hollywood and started a job at Hollywood Animal Hospital. It was a large referral practice that wanted to add avian and exotics. And when I first started there, I was seeing maybe only 10% exotics. And within about two and a half years, I was seeing 90% exotics. And I made the decision to take the plunge and start a practice of my own. One of the main reasons I did this was because I could see that my patients really didn't do well being around dogs and cats. Most of the species that I see are prey animals. When you think of you know, rabbits and birds and small mammals, they just don't do well being around predatory animals such as dogs or cats. They're already sick. They're already stressed. And then here they are in a veterinary setting and sitting in the waiting room right next to an unhappy dog or a cat. And it was challenging to start seeing more and more and more exotics in such a huge, busy dog and cat practice. So at almost the three-year mark, my husband and I decided to start our own veterinary practice. We started very small. I bought all used equipment from a practice that was closing in West Virginia, and we started in a 1,200-square-foot vein and office park. And I honestly thought maybe after two years I might need another vet, maybe after five or six years I'd need more space. And... When I started up the practice, I was shocked at how busy we got very, very quickly. After six months, I had to bring on a second veterinarian. And after two years, we had to move into a 4,000 square foot building. So that really solidified for me that not only do the avian and exotic pets need that environment without dogs and cats, their owners want that. They don't like to be in a building when there's barking dogs and the smell of cats and things that really upset their family members. So that's how it started. And I've been doing this almost 23 years now. And I can say I honestly still sincerely love my job. That's so fantastic. I know that getting into zoo medicine or exotic small animal medicine is so difficult. And it's so awesome what you've done just looking at your website and looking at uh, the TV show. So tell us a little bit how you even got onto Nat Geo Wild. That was a strange thing. It's not something I honestly sought out. And to be honest, my job is already, you know, kind of on the edge. Everything 
is stressful. These animals come in very fragile, crashing. Um, they've already hidden their symptoms of illness for a long period of time. So by the time they come to us, they're very critical. And when uh, when it started, Nat Geo wanted to do a show that was aiming at exotic animals in the veterinary setting. And they found us via the internet. They called us. And my office manager at the time talked to them. And she was very enthused about it. And she was trying to talk me into it. And I was like, I don't want cameras on me. I don't want cameras all around. This is, you know, we're so busy and stressful and, and all that. And she goes, no, 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 let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. So they Skype interviewed myself and all my staff. They liked us enough to send out a production company to shoot what's called a sizzler reel. And what that is, is they'll spend about two weeks filming and they'll put together a nine or 10 minute clip that kind of just gives the executives an idea of what's going on here. So they made their sizzler reel and then showed it to the executives and they didn't like it. So me personally, I was like, okay, that was interesting. Time to move on. I, it was, I, it wasn't too upset that it didn't go through and it was an interesting experience, the filming. But then just a couple weeks later, I got a call from a man named Guy Nickerson, who's the head of Spectrum Productions in Tampa. And he said, he introduced himself and he said, I have to tell you, I've never heard of this happening before. It's really a one in a million situation. But Nat Geo liked you. They liked your staff. They liked what was going on here. They just didn't like how the original production company put the sizzler reel together. It was a British company and British people tend to like a very documentary style, whereas Americans like stories. So they sent out um, Guy's company to make a second sizzler reel. And Nat Geo absolutely loved that. And uh, I guess the rest is history is uh, what I'd say. They, you know, we our first season, we did six episodes and then it was eight. And then we've been shooting 10 per season since. And we're currently in the process of filming season six. That's so fantastic. It's so great to be able to help practice and increase the quality of care through your TV show. So what are some of the typical exotic patients that you see on a daily basis? Well, on any given day, it's potluck. Like right now in the hospital, I've got a cotton top tamarind who just got neutered. We had a guinea pig that had foot surgery, a rabbit that had a rhinostomy from sinus infection. We've got a pot-bellied pig in the back, several rabbits, a bird that's going to have endoscopy on his sinuses today. We just had some wellness exams. Dr. Thielen just saw a family that has exotic exotics. They had a couple of kangaroos, a sloth, and some lemurs that needed their annual checkups and vaccines. So it's just, there's really no typical, typical day. Any day is potluck. You know, today was heavy on the birds morning. Some days I'll see three or four pot-bellied pigs. And some days I'll have 11 different appointments and see 11 different species. It's fun. Now, being that I'm also an emergency critical care veterinary specialist, I see a ton of exotics in the ER too. And I was wondering if you could just talk on some of the top five most common emergencies that you end up seeing and specifically what pet owners can do to help improve their husbandry for some of these more common emergencies that you're seeing. Got it. Several good points there. I'd like to comment. One thing that kind of surprised me was when they named the show Dr. K's Exotic Animal ER. I was like, well, why did they call it an ER? It's just my practice. I'm a day practice. But then when you see it through the viewer's eyes, it's like, you know, it's just what I'm used to. It's like, uh, yeah, everything is an emergency. The thing that happens with the species that I see is that, like I said, most of them are prey animals and they're very, very adept at hiding their symptoms of illness. So, my receptionists are trained to take these clients seriously. If I have a rabbit client call and they tell us that the rabbit's just not eating or just not eating ravenously or just slightly off, 
that rabbit has to come in immediately. It can't wait a day. It can't wait two days. It can't wait until next week. That's actually an emergency. Even the animal's still getting around, the animal's still eating some, you have to be tuned into a different level of sensitivity with avian and exotic animals because of their ability to hide symptoms of illness. They hide their symptoms of illness till they just cannot compensate anymore. Some of the most common things that we see, birds with respiratory distress, rabbits with GI and dental problems, ferrets with insulinomas and GI obstructions, those are pretty common, trauma. There's, we have had, unfortunately, a bird last week where a larger bird ripped off its upper beak. It's doing okay. It's able to scoop and eat with the bottom beak. And, um, you know, we get the traditional emergency things like broken bones. But really with the exotics, each species has their own thing that's most common. Like I said, with the rabbits, you're going to see very, very, very subtle changes. And it could be something life-threatening. Even though this animal isn't flat out, it's really having its prey instincts kick in and hiding everything. So the biggest thing I train my clients to do, number one, we're huge on well care. For over 20 years, I've been calling my office visits their annual exams. I call it a wellness exam. When they get the reminder card, it says wellness exam on it. You're due for your wellness exam. So even though the patients that I see, not all of them are getting um, a vaccine series or heartworm testing or the routine things that bring dogs and cats into the hospital. My clients have been trained for over two decades to understand the importance of wellness exams. And that is very critical for me. We're able to intervene on things like, you know, liver disease or, you know, chronic renal failures, something that's going on that you haven't even seen signs for it yet, but I've picked up on things like a bladder stone on a routine wellness exam and minor changes in blood work that indicate a problem that we pursue when we're still in the position to be able to fix it and take care of it. And that is very, very rewarding for me. That's taken a long time to train clients to understand the importance of wellness care. But they routinely let me do, like my, my birds and rabbit patients, ferret patients, they routinely let me do annual wellness blood panels on their patients so that we can catch things early, intervene, and make sure they're doing well. In regard to the emergencies, the biggest thing that I can't emphasize enough is that to take subtle signs seriously. It can be very difficult to recognize pain in a reptile or a ferret. And it's important that these people are tuned in and they know their animal's normal behavior so that if they are out of those parameters, they know they have to get them in and be seen. Thank you so much. Now, you talked briefly before about rabbits and when they don't eat or they're, they have a decrease in appetite that you worry that it's life-threatening. Do you mind just briefly talking about gastric stasis in rabbits and why it's so important that if you own a rabbit and you're listening to this show of, of ER Vet, this is why you need to pay attention because it can be life-threatening. So, Dr. K, do you mind just talking about that sure, a little absolutely. bit more? GI stasis is just, it's where the rabbit's intestinal tract has slowed down and doesn't have normal motility. They tend to build up a lot of gas, and the reason for that is they process what they eat by a fermentation process. They have bacteria and yeast that work together in their digestive tract to break down the high fiber hay into usable nutrition. If their intestines are not doing that normal peristaltic movement, that normal squeezing of ingesta down, down the chute, then the gas builds up. This causes tremendous amount of pain and distress and the rabbits really go downhill quickly. It can progress to where they get a leaky gut, they get endotoxemic shock, and they can even die from this. That's not the only thing we see that it causes a rabbit to stop eating. I see things like liver torsions are quite common in rabbits. 
And that's the thing where they might look like you're just generic GI stasis rabbit, which is not even interested in food, sitting in a hunched position, first slightly raised, maybe the eyes are squinted a little bit, they're looking uncomfortable, but you really need to get them in because some people will try to treat this at home. They'll give the, you know, anti-gas drops, isomethicone drops, abdominal massage, syringe feeding. Some people even have medications that they use that they've had at home from a previous situation and they'll start using those again and my caution is you know not all rabbits that are feeling well have gi stasis it could be the torus liver lobe it could be renal failure it, it you know it could be an intestinal obstruction it could be bloat there's any number of things and it's so critical that we get these animals in to be evaluated by an experienced veterinarian all right rabbit owner so just like Dr. K said, if your rabbit is showing even some mild signs of not eating well or not having normal appetite, make sure to get to a vet right away. And I think it's so important. Most dogs and cats, we know will master signs, but that's even more important with some of these small pocket pets and exotic animals that are out there. Absolutely. These animals just, they hide their symptoms. And I, I just sound repetitive when I say that, but I live this every single day. And I'm so blessed that I have clients that are so on top of things. I have an example of a client I just saw yesterday. He first brought his rabbit in about two and a half weeks ago. Just not, his only complaint was the rabbit wasn't eating as enthusiastically and as much as normal. And, you know, on initial physical exam, I associated seeing the rabbit. Uh, there were some minor dental spurs. She addressed those. Some rabbits are very wimpy. Some rabbits are very bothered by those. And we expect them to fully recover after that. But went home and the rabbit just didn't pick up, just didn't start diving into the food again. So he came back a week later and I, on my physical exam, I noticed something very subtle. The third eyelids were just starting to come up a tiny bit. And I, I've known from experience that that can be an indicator of a mass in the chest. So we took uh, radiographs, chest radiographs, and lo and behold, the rabbit had a huge mass in the right side of the chest and it did turn out to be a thymoma. The rabbit's on an appropriate treatment right now, and the mass has shrunk down to 25% the size of its original presentation. But again, this was a rabbit. It was still getting around the house. This rabbit was still affectionate. The rabbit was still eating most of its food. The rabbit was passing normal stool, but it just wasn't 100%. And lo and behold, it had this huge mass in its chest. That's how significant it is about these animals with the slightest sign that they're not 100% that they be seen and thoroughly evaluated. All right. Thank you so much. We'll continue with a really cool topic where we're interviewing Dr. K as soon as this break is over. And again, we'll talk about her show, Dr. K's Exotic Animal ER, right after these messages from our sponsors. Not pumped about cleaning the litter box? Try World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. That's right. You scoop once and you're done. No chiseling, no scraping, no crumbling, no problem. Looking for fast and easy litter box cleanup? Zero Mess. Try it. You're welcome in advance. Save $2 on World's Best Cat Litter. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. It's not just a sneeze. It could be the pathway to disease. Your dog is at risk for contracting dog flu. That's why it's important to vaccinate your dog for dog flu. Get your dog vaccinated today. Visit dogflu.com for more information. 
Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. We are interviewing Dr. Susan Kelleher, who owns and operates one of the busiest exotic animal ER practices located in South Florida, and that's called Broward Avian and Exotic Animal Hospital. What we've been talking about are what emergencies we see with ferrets, fish, marsupials, all different shapes and sizes of animals that she ends up seeing. So rabbits and reptiles, birds are probably the top ones. Now, I've noticed that on some of your episodes, you have a bunch of different animals getting into unusual things. Do you mind just telling me about some of the unusual foreign bodies that you have pulled out of some of these exotic (laughs) animals? Yeah. And how do we prevent it? Yeah, that's a tough one. I pulled it. Let's see. One of the hardest was a blue terry cloth sock that I pulled out of a pot-bellied pig. And that was an extremely difficult surgery because it was um, stuck at a portion of her intestine where there's a ligament holding her intestine to her upper body wall. So that was very challenging. Ferrets are probably my worst offenders when it comes to foreign bodies. And I have pulled everything from balloons, earplugs, pencil erasers, the rubber knobs off of uh, remote controls, sneaker soles, silicone caulking, bedding, just all kinds of crazy stuff. I actually had a family of three ferrets at one time who presented to me completely moribund, like flat out, severely neurologic, couldn't even stand up. Long story short, they had a little party with a ferret bed, ripped it open, and had eaten the stuffing that had been treated with a flame retardant. So they were in such severe condition, the owner was actually considering euthanasia. And I said, you know what, let's just try some activated charcoal to absorb toxins and fluids. And within three to four hours, they were 100% back to normal. I wish all emergencies ended that happy. They don't always go that way. But yeah, foreign bodies, ferrets are the number one, but I have taken some crazy things out of, I had a serval that ate the little soft hand off a monkey puppet. And, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the other things. It's been so many, I could, if I had a, I could fill a room with the foreign bodies I've taken out, I think. It's crazy. I can't believe they eat that. What are some easy ways that some of these owners can help prevent a visit to the ER when it comes to foreign bodies? That's a tough one with ferrets, especially because they are so sneaky and they're little thieves. It takes a very experienced ferret owner to learn over time how to really, truly ferret proof their house. It's not every ferret that is shoving everything in their mouth. But if you see that your particular ferret is really into chewing on rubbery things, that's a ferret that I would (laughs) limit access to those things for sure and keep a really close eye on them when they're outside out playing. Excellent. The next thing I wanted to ask you, and I saw this on one of your episodes, is the problem of what we call in the veterinary world being egg bound. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that in terms of what do owners look for? Is there anything they can do to prevent it? And when should they get to a veterinarian? And how do we actually treat this problem? Got it. Okay, so egg binding is something that happens in both birds and reptiles. The most common is birds, and they're the easiest to spot it when it's happening. Sometimes the birds will have already laid an egg or they know their bird's a female, has been an egg layer in the past. Sometimes they don't even know their bird's a female. So a lot of times our egg-bound birds just present as a bird that's kind of lethargic and down and out on the bottom of the cage. 
Their lower abdomen may or may not be distended, just depending on how far the egg has moved down the oviduct. And it's something that a veterinarian can feel on physical exam. Some owners are savvy enough with their birds that they can feel that firm bulge in the lower part of the bird's belly. And in regard to whether or not to intervene. Now, when we think about it in one regard, that's what birds do. Birds lay eggs. Most birds lay eggs very uneventfully, just like chickens do. But if a bird is not on an optimal diet, and I do by optimal diet for the citizens and most of our pet species, that usually means a pelleted diet with some fresh fruits and vegetables, but also fresh air and sunshine. I consider that part of the diet. That's where birds get their vitamin D. That helps them absorb calcium. They need that for proper egg formation and getting the egg out of the body. So if our pet birds aren't on an optimum plane of nutrition and they're down and out and they have a bulge in the belly, that is something that just we shouldn't wait to see is this bird going to pass its egg on its own. It never hurts to get the bird into the vet to be evaluated. It's not uncommon for the birds to be very, very dehydrated. Sometimes the way we approach this, we'll just provide some fluid support. We will put them in a warming incubator and help lubricate the cloacal area. And a lot of times these birds will pass them on their own with supportive care. But unfortunately, some birds have been hiding this for a period of time or they get so dehydrated that the egg can actually even stick in the oviduct. And worst case scenario is that it can even block the ureters from draining waste from the kidneys. I've seen that happen to birds. And when that happens, the bird's uric acid can go very, very, very high and be life-threatening because that can cause severe systemic gout. So... Not to sound scary, but if anybody is in any doubt at all about their bird, if they've been straining, if you've seen any blood at the bottom of the cage, bulge in the abdomen, any of those signs at all, I would get to an avian experienced vet as soon as possible. And what exactly is an avian or exotics veterinarian going to do for the egg-bound bird? And how is it diagnosed? Well, usually, sometimes you can feel it on palpation if it's done low enough. I do prefer to take radiographs because I have had birds. In fact, I had a macaw that I had a spay last month that actually had three eggs all backed up inside of her. And she, her the one egg had layer after layer, and it was just stuck in the um, oviduct. And that was kind of disastrous. So radiographs are the preferred way to diagnose this. It's one thing if you can feel one egg, but you don't know what else is going on inside of that bird. The other thing we like to do is check their blood calcium levels and make sure they're adequate enough that the bird has enough calcium to be able to contract those muscles, get that egg out. In regard to a treatment protocol, first thing we do is start out conservatively. We evaluate the bird. If indicated, give pain medication. Give some sub-Q fluids. Sometimes I'll even do IV catheters. I, I really, really like IV catheters in birds. I know people mostly think of that with dogs and cats, but my philosophy is if you had a really critically ill dog or cat that you would have an IV catheter in, if you have a critically ill bird, I would want an IV catheter in that bird as well. And that way we can provide fluid support, get that bird rehydrated, and then you know give it some calcium supplementation as needed as well. Often just putting the bird in a humidified warm incubator, lubing the cloaca, giving the fluid support, little nutritional support. A lot of times within 24 hours, these birds will pass it on their own. It's a judgment call. There's times when I get a bird in where I know this bird is just way too down and out to get this egg out on its own. And eggs take up a lot of space in birds. And some of these birds come in quite compromised, breathing heavily, and they really don't get relief and turn a corner until we help them get that egg out. 
Sometimes we do that with just a little bit of light sedation with some midazolam and turbogesic, and other times we have to use isoflurane anesthesia, which is a gas, but we will manually, gently push that egg out. You have to be careful. You don't want to put too much pressure on the kidneys. Again, it's something being done by an experienced veterinarian. But that way, you can kind of expedite the bird feeling better, turning a corner, and recovering from the situation. Then we have to look at the big picture and say, well, why did this bird get egg-bound in the first place? That's where we go back and we evaluate the husbandry. Earlier in our conversation, you did mention husbandry, and that is huge in my practice. Even though we're seeing animals in a sick, distressed, emergency situations, those situations are often precipitated by husbandry that's gone wrong. So even though an animal is in for being egg-bound, I don't just zone in, fix the egg-binding situation, and then send the bird home back to the you know same diet, same care, same husbandry. We get the bird stabilized, take care of the crisis, but then I work closely with the owners on getting the birds changed to a higher plane of nutrition, just a better overall environmental care, fresh air and sunshine, and exercise, getting these birds healthier so that they won't have this crisis again in the future. And, you know, that goes across the board with many of the species we see. If the rabbits with GI stasis, it's often because they're on an inappropriate diet being the kind that has oh, seeds and corn mixed in or no hay at all. So, even though the rabbit's in for GI stasis, we don't just fix just the GI stasis, which is you know supportive care, GI motility drugs, syringe feeding, pain medication, um, abdominal massage, etc. We go back and try to work with the owner, figure out okay why did this happen in the first place, so that we can prevent it from ever happening again. That's very important to me. You know, Dr. K, I am not going to lie. I am so grateful for veterinarians like you because feathers and scales totally scare me. I'm a, you know, predominantly small animal clinician, so I prefer to see dogs and cats. So I'm always so appreciative of uh, my veterinary colleagues who see patients with scales and feathers. And I know it's uh, such an art and really appreciate you and all that you do, including your staff who are who are oh, all I love over them. treating this. Yes, love I know you have to have staff. a really unique staff for this, right? Yep, my staff, they are my angels. Um, they've been with me a very, very long time. Kristen and Diane have been with me 10 and 11 years, respectively. Wow. And they just anticipate my needs. They're tuned into the patient. They're fantastic about, hey, you know, this per- this one's looking painful. Can I give them some more pain meds? Absolutely invaluable. I just can't say enough good things about them. They can actually do things that even experienced even in exotic clinicians can't do, like intubate a rabbit, get blood from a bird, those kinds of things. I'm so grateful for them. And um, it's not for everybody. Um, I have to say that I'm profoundly grateful for, for you all that will see dogs and cats because it's just not my jam. People who have seen the show know that I, I dutifully took care of my dad's dog, Dolly, who was a diabetic cushionoid for almost six years, and we just lost her a couple months ago. Oh. But I even take my own <laughs> Labrador retrievers to another vet. I've got you know one vet friend of mine who spayed them for me, and then if they have any orthopedic issues, I go to a different vet friend, and then and in turn, I take care of the vet who spayed them. I take care of her macaw, and the vet that does any eyeball stuff with my animals. I take care of her African gray and it it works out wonderfully like that. We all have a niche. We all have our, our talents and this is what I'm comfortable with. And I just, I truly enjoy the variety. I love the clients that come in here. I have to honestly say, I love my clients. You know, I get people who drove here from Texas with their squirrel with this really severe dental issue. It, they just blow me away. I have people from, with pot-bellied pigs that come from three hours away in Naples and they're so committed to their pets 
it's incredibly refreshing to work with them. And I do try to inspire other veterinarians to, you know, just be aware of the avian exotic needs and how fun they are to work with. And the clients are amazing. They're great people. The animals are great. It can be a little challenging, but I find it very rewarding. It's the coolest thing in the world when I'm taking care of some birds that are almost 40 years old that I've been taking care of for the last 20 years. And I've had, I've had a bird that was 63. I had another one that was 72. I've got a box turtle patient that's 55. And that's a very unique bond. This woman with the box turtle has had that turtle since she was five years old. So it's just a really unique world that I'm very appreciative to be a part of. That is so amazing. Now, for those of you guys out there, definitely worth tuning in to check out Dr. K's TV show called Dr. K's Exotic Animal ER. It airs Sundays at 9 p.m. East Coast time or 8 p.m. Central time on Nat Geo Wild. And this is the same exact series as the incredible Dr. Pohl and Dr. Oakland Yukon Vet. And I think the amazing thing is you can tell when you watch all three of these shows that all the veterinarians have a love, an intense love for their animals, regardless if they're dogs, cats, cows, horses, or patients with feathers or with scales. And it's so nice to see the passion that you have towards saving these exotic animals. I know that there's 10 episodes that are coming up. And again, Dr. K, thank you so much for being on today's show. And think it's so cool what you're doing with Nat Geo Wild to help increase the education and the husbandry and the care for some of our more unique pets that fly, crawl, and slither. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much and good luck. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. You can definitely find Dr. K on the Broward Avian and Exotic Animal Hospital Facebook page. And if you have any questions specifically for me, you can reach out to me on drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me any of your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, and we wanted to thank Dr. K for being on our show today, and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.